Today's scripture is from Genesis 2, 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in, la in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work on the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, <clears throat> and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, the name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Dilium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, um, I know this week was um, September 11th uh, was earlier this week, and um, obviously September 11th has a national significance for us, but it reminded me, I was um, installed officially as your pastor on September 11th a year ago. Uh, so this is I guess 53 weeks uh, that I've been your pastor. And uh, seems like an appropriate time to just say that completing my first year as your pastor, I couldn't be more thrilled to be anywhere than in San Luis Obispo. I love you, I love this church. I'm feeling really emotional today for some reason. Um, but I just wanted to take this anniversary <laughs> Sunday maybe to, to say that to you. Um, I'm excited this morning to continue our series in Genesis. Uh, I think the last couple of months we have been, uh, it's been since we began this series in the early chapters of Genesis. And, and this morning we're looking at this passage in Genesis 2, which really is uh, the final sort of episode in the first section of the Bible. I feel like that was a complicated sentence, but, but what I mean is this, that many people have pointed out that essentially the Bible, 
uh, is a story with four acts. And there are many different books in the Bible, there are many chapters in the Bible, uh, but really the Bible is telling one story. And it tells that story in four acts, and the acts are creation, and then fall, and then redemption, and then glorification. And so this morning we are completing, looking at that first act, the act of uh, creation. And um, what we're doing as we're, as we're looking at the early chapters of Genesis is we're taking a final look at the story of creation because it roots and orients us to life in the world that we live in. And so as we take this final look at, the, at what does it mean that we live in a world that was created by God, I want to begin today by telling you a different story. Um, a different story. And so here's this, this, this different story that I want to tell you. In the beginning, there was water. And there were two kinds of water. There was a, uh, a turbulent, feminine sort of water. And there was a calm and masculine sort of water. And this water is where the gods were born. And there is a place where these two kinds of water come together and they create this turbulent pool which is noisy and raucous and it's from this turbulent pool that the gods uh, emerge. They're not really born, but they emerge from this pool. And so there are all these rival gods living in chaos and one of them emerges as the most powerful of the gods. And uh, because he is the most powerful of the gods, he decides that this pool where all the gods live is too small for him. And so he finds some sea monsters and he rallies them to his cause. And he goes to war against his mother, the sea goddess. You're like, what in the world is this story? I'm going to tell you in a second. And he kills his mother. And then as an afterthought, he has the corpse of his mother and he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he decides to turn the corpse of the sea goddess into the earth. And it's out of the the flesh of his deceased goddess mother that the dome of the heaven is created and 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 the expanse of the land is created. And then he thinks keeping up this earth that he has made is going to be a lot of work. And so he creates a race of slaves. And it's the job of the slaves to do the work to appease the gods so that they continue to live a life of luxury. The conquering god is Marduk. The slaves are the human race. And the story is called the Enuma Elish. And it's the Babylonian creation myth. It's, it's, it's the... Um, kind of rival story for explaining the origins of the earth that was uh, widely believed to, uh, to explain the nature of life at the time that the Old Testament was written. I wonder if you can imagine what it would be like to live in a world where you thought that that story explained your existence. It's a story where struggle characterizes every sort of relationship, the relationship between human and divine, between male and female, between the spiritual and the material world, between our uh, work in the world and ourselves. And of course, you can unpack that in greater detail, but the reason that I mention it is, is, is to simply ask you that. What do you think it would be like to live in a world where you thought that you were created to be a slave as an afterthought? where struggle characterized your very existence. What would it be like to live in that world? 
uh, to, live, to live in that world. That's the world that the ancient Egyptians lived in, and it's the world in which the true story of the origins of the human race uh, was first told to the people of God. So can you imagine what good news it would be living in that sort of world to hear the Bible's account of the origin of the cosmos, to rest in the assurance that all that we see was created uh, as the overflow of a God who, exist, who has existed in a relationship of love with himself for all time and eternity. Can you imagine what good news it would feel like to comprehend that you were not created for struggle, but you begin with dignity and you are invited into partnership with the creator God into a purposeful life of culture making with God. The passage that we're looking at today is really the summary of all that we've seen over the past couple of months. Uh, that's why it begins with what sounds to us like this curious Phrase: These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. What it means is this is a summary of, of all that has been told to us in God's account of creation. We've been introduced to the main character in this story, God. We have been uh, told about the context in which this story plays out, the good world that he created. And we have found our own place and purpose and relationships in this world. And now we recap all that God has told us about the world that we live in with this summary that really gives us a picture of the world as God intended it to be. A world where we live in relationship with him, a world, a place that he's given us to thrive. This is the world as God intended it to be, and really we can summarize all of what God intended for our world to be with one word, and it's the word covenant. Covenant. Uh, there is a subtle shift in this passage that indicates to us that the word covenant is at the heart of the way God relates to the world. Now, you might be wondering, how did you get that? Because unless you've bought a house recently that is in an HOA, you probably don't use the word covenant on a regular basis, right? Except for worship this morning because we picked a bunch of songs that have the word covenant. Um, but it's not a word that we use very often, and it's not actually in Genesis 2. So where does that come from? Um, it, what we, I think we have to understand is that there's this very subtle shift that happens between Genesis 1 and 2. And our English translations of the Bible obscures that, but the Hebrew uh, hearers of this passage would have gotten this immediately. And what it, what it looks like is this. Throughout Genesis 1, uh, God is referred to with the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim is the Hebrew word that means God, generically. And so Elohim can refer to uh, the God of the Bible, but Elohim can refer to the uh, pagan gods of the various nations. The word Elohim could even refer to uh, like false gods, the way that we tend to deify um, created things. And so throughout Genesis 1, it says over and over again that uh, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and Elohim said, let there be light, and there was light, and Elohim said that it was good. God is referred to over and over again with this generic word for God, Elohim. But then in chapter 2 is this subtle shift, and it says in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust. And again, the English translation here is 
somewhat obscuring what's going on here because whenever you see the word Lord in your Bible, if it's printed in all capital letters or capital L and then small caps, O-R-D, the Hebrew word that's actually there is the word Yahweh. And the word Yahweh um, really comes into the story really later in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 3, where God comes and sees that his people are, 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 are trapped in slavery in Egypt, and he calls Moses, and he says to Moses, um, Moses, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and you're going to go lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses' response is, what he says in, Hebrew, in, in Exodus 3 is, who shall I tell them has sent me? But, but really what Moses is getting at is sort of like, what is your name? You can think about it like this. To refer to God as Elohim is like to refer to God as sir or Lord, <laughs> like a faraway, distant, generic deity. And God comes to Moses and says, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of slavery. And Moses says, what's your name? And God says, Again, a a word that's hard to translate. It's usually translated in Exodus 3, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, but the word is the word Yahweh. And for God's people in the Old Testament, the word, the name, the personal name of God, Yahweh, was considered so holy that whenever someone was reading the scrolls in the synagogue and they got to where it said Yahweh, they would say out loud, Lord. And so that's why our Bibles are, uh, whenever you see the word Lord, it printed in small caps. The, the real Hebrew word there is, is Yahweh. And I know that that feels like a detail that, that was really a long time to explain, but it's somewhat tragic because this nuance and the personal name of God um, as he makes himself known to his people is, is lost when we read the, the word Lord. But the point of all of it is this, that in Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim in the generic. And then we get to this summary of all that God has done in creation, and it says that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping personal God, places the, peop- the first human beings in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> and what this is pointing us to and signaling for us is the reality that God always relates to his people by way of a covenant. The name Yahweh is associated with the God of the covenant. And we see throughout the Old Testament that God always relates to his people by way of covenant. And we see this um, throughout the Old Testament, but we, we see this really clearly when God comes to, uh, to Abram in Genesis 12, and he says, Abram, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and through you, all of the people on earth will be blessed. That is God's promise. That is God's covenant uh, to his people. We see this, again, throughout the Old Testament, God comes and reiterates that covenant promise to his people, and the point of all of that is this. Though the word covenant does not appear in Genesis 2, scholars always point out that all of the elements of the covenant appear in Genesis 2. And so what God is doing when he summarizes his creative work is he is saying, I am relating to my people, the human race, by way of a covenant promise. 
And what this shows us is that the world that God intended involved God entering into a covenant with us. There are three elements of every covenant. You see this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, There's a people, there's a place, and there is a presence. Again, think about God coming to Abram in in Genesis 12 and saying, Abram, I'm going to give you the promised land. You're going to be my people, and I will be with you, and I will be your God. A people, a place, and a presence. And we see those same elements showing up here when we look at the capstone of creation. The world as God intended it involves God making a covenant with the human race where he makes us his people, where he gives us a place to live, and he promises to be with us as our God. And the net result of God's covenant with the human race is that the whole world will be blessed through us. And so really that's what I want to explore with you this morning, the the nature of the covenant and then the blessings that flow out of that covenant. So the first thing, we'll spend most of our time on this this morning, that we see in Genesis 2 is the covenant in creation. Covenant relationships existed throughout the ancient world, not strictly a biblical uh, way of of orienting relationships. We we see, um, and scholars who have studied this see throughout the ancient world, Uh, instances of covenants between individuals, uh, covenants between families or tribes, covenants between nations. In many cases, there there are covenants between two peer nations who are saying, you know, two two smaller nations who are saying if Babylon or, or Egypt comes and invades us, we will never survive. So let's covenant with one another in order to uh, survive and to protect one another throughout the ancient world. And God uses this uh, relationship, this covenant relationship as a way of communicating the way that he relates to his people. And essentially a covenant is this, a covenant is coming to somebody who is not your family and saying, let's treat each other like we are members of the same family. And in fact, if you think about in the New Testament, why do Christians refer to each other as brother and sister? It's because we've been brought into the covenant family of God. So a covenant is about uh, people who are not related to one another saying, if somebody attacks you, I'm going to treat you not like my neighbor or my business partner, but like my brother or my sister or my mother or my father. And we're going to come to one another's aid. And so when God comes to his people from the very beginning, he's saying to us, I'm not going to treat you like an enemy. Uh, I'm not going to treat you like an animal. I mean, that's significant. God created all the animals and they were good, but God doesn't treat us like an animal. He's not saying, I'm going to treat you like a business partner. I'm not going to treat you like a consumer who's trying to get something from me, but I'm going to treat you like my children. You're going to call me father and I'm going to treat you like a daughter, like a son. I will look out for you. I will care for you. I will give you direction and guidance, and through that you'll find purpose. I will give you good gifts, I will protect you, and I will help you live into a life where you will flourish, and that's what all of us who are parents want to do for our children, right? And that's that's what God is saying to the human race. I'm gonna be in covenant with you. And since sin entered into the world, humans have always been tempted to look to relationships and say, relationships with one another and with God, really, we kind of look at each other and say, what's in this relationship for me? 
Uh, but increasingly, we live in a world where we have almost limited, limitless options on how we can spend our time. And we have technology that is designed to make us feel like we're always missing out on something. Uh, and so if it's Friday night and we're hanging out with friends, but we're looking at our phones because we're looking at friends that are somewhere else doing something else and we're tempted to leave what we're doing to go so we're not missing out, our technology enables us to think that we're constantly missing out. And then we live in a world increasingly where we tell each other that the meaning of life is to make ourselves happy. And all of this means that we are prone to viewing our relationships as really consumer experiences, where we look at one another not in terms of <clears throat> our commitment to one another, but rather what we can uh, get out of one another. We look at all of our relationships like a consumer transaction. <clears throat> and Genesis 2 is showing us that there's a different way to view relationships. And that the world as God intended it begins with Yahweh entering into covenant relationship with us. And so what do we see? Well, we see that Yahweh forms human beings from the dust. Yahweh forms man from dust and breathes life into him. And Yahweh plants a garden and he places the human race in that garden. And Yahweh causes plants and trees to grow so that the human race has food but also lives in this beautiful place. And Yahweh makes uh, his presence known to the human race. And we see that Yahweh, the creator, God invites the human race to partner with him. Uh, he's already told Adam in, in Genesis 1, fill the earth and subdue it. Here he says, tend the garden and work it. And uh, scholars talk about this as the creation mandate that God is essentially saying to the human race, you have heard that I am the creative God who created out of nothing and then took the raw material of creation and shaped it um, into a, an, an orderly and beautiful creation, and now I want you to go and do what you've seen me doing. And so God calls us to partner with him by taking the raw material of creation and bringing it to order so that culture is made and that beauty exists. And that's what Yahweh is inviting the human race into here. And what we have to see here is that all of the essential elements of the covenant are, are present here. People, a place, and presence. God creates the human race. He places them in this garden, which is literally paradise, or you could say it's literally heaven on earth, because heaven is not a distant place behind the clouds. Heaven is where the presence of God is. And God has made his presence known in the Garden of Eden, so this is heaven on earth. And so the first thing this means for us, okay, so that's interesting, theology, pastor, what difference does that make for me? I think the first thing we have to see here is that the essence of the way that God relates to his people is grace. God gives all of this as a gift to his people. We have done nothing to earn or deserve this. And I think this is really important because a lot of people will point out that if you look at all of the world religions, the moral principles of all world religions have a lot in common with one another. And so, you know, most religions, you don't even have to be a religious person to believe that, you know, you shouldn't murder people. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie. 
Uh, pretty much every way of life, religious or otherwise, presents essentially, you know, some minor variation, very similar moral stipulations. What makes the Bible different, what's make, what makes Christianity different is not that there are different moral principles in the Bible. It's the narrative that holds all of those moral principles together. And the Bible says that the principle that holds all this together is the God of a, uh, the covenant God who moves towards his people with grace. And so God does not sort of say to his people at the beginning, here are the 10 things you must do, and if you do them, then I will welcome you into this covenant. Rather, God creates his people, places them in paradise, says, I will be with you. And then says, because of what I have done for you, because of the grace I have shown you, I want to ask you to respond to me in love. Yahweh, the covenant God, is gracious to his people. But then we see that uh, there, are, there are covenant stipulations. Because God is gracious to his people, um, he invites us to respond in a natural and appropriate way. Um, when my wife is you know, kind to me, it's appropriate that I respond to her with kindness, not with demands, right? God um, says, because I have been gracious to you, there are stipulations that are appropriate. And, and again, this was known throughout the ancient world. Two nations make a covenant with one another. They say, we will come to one another's aid. We will treat each other like brothers, like family, though we are not related. Um, and then they, the, the, the covenant would always specify the blessings and the curses that will come if the covenant is obeyed. Blessings come if the covenant is followed. Curses come if the covenant um, is not followed, if, if one party it turns out to be unfaithful to the covenant. And so it is with God. How will God, how will both parties behave in order to maintain the covenant relationship? And so for the human race, the question is then, given the gracious covenant that Yahweh has entered into us with him, how do we maintain the covenant? How is it appropriate for us to respond to the gracious God who enters into covenant with us? And the answer to that is laid out very clearly in, in, in uh, verse 15 and following. The Lord God, Yahweh God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, here's the stipulation. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Hebrew of that last part is sort of this emphatic statement where what God says is, in the day that you eat of the tree dying you shall die. Um, Sandra Richter is an Old Testament scholar and she, she says this about this passage. She says, in essence, Adam and Eve are free to do anything except decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. Yahweh reserves for himself the right and responsibility to name those truths. So essentially, God has placed good people in a great place and given them his gracious presence and says, I want you to trust me with what is right and wrong. That's the covenant stipulation. And you demons, we demonstrate that 
trust in God by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And scholars debate whether there was something magical about this tree, and I think it's probably more likely that it was just an ordinary tree that God sets up almost as a, like, this is how you're gonna prove that you trust me. Don't eat the fruit of this one tree, but you are free in every other regard. The God who creates and graciously invites us into covenant, the God who brings the human race into covenant with himself says, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that having created you and placed you in paradise and promised myself to you, that I know what's good for you. That like a father who loves his children, I'm going to lead you into a way of growth and life and abundance. I think it's really important for us to understand that that's what's going on here because when we begin to talk about sin, which enters into the equation next week, we'll start looking at chapter three, it's easy for us to think of sin as sort of arbitrary moral principles that God tells us not to violate. And then to turn around and say, okay, so I sinned, I broke this law, but what difference does it make? But when we understand the covenantal nature of the world in which we were created, what we understand is that sin is fundamentally a violation of trust. Sin is fundamentally a, an act of betrayal of a God who has been overwhelmingly gracious to us. We'll get more into that next week, but, but we know that things don't continue this way, that, that this good world with good human beings living in the gracious presence of God does not continue in this way. The story takes a, a dramatic turn after this, and, and though the gracious God makes us as his people and places us in paradise and gives us his presence, human beings churn, t- choose to turn our back on him and go our own way. And when we break the covenant that God makes with us, Yahweh responds by graciously pursuing us. And that's amazing. And at great personal expense, he shows us that, Yahweh shows us that he will keep his end of the covenant, even when we don't keep our end of the covenant. Yahweh's immediate response when Adam and Eve betray him, this is so great, his immediate response, he doesn't have to go and think about what he's going to do, but his immediate response is to pursue us. His immediate response is to promise that he will make all things right again. And so throughout the Old Testament, what we're seeing is the story, this kind of unfolding drama of the God who has made a promise to redeem his people, kind of wrestling with his people who really don't want him to redeem them. Until finally the moment comes and the promise is fulfilled as Yahweh doesn't shout at us from heaven, but takes on human flesh and comes to us, comes to earth, as one of us in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes to earth, he comes to fulfill the covenant promises of God by upholding the human end, 
the human end of our obligation. What does that mean? Think about it like this. When, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, the first thing he does is he goes out to the Jordan River where his cousin, John the Baptist, is baptizing people. And Jesus goes out to John, and John sees him coming and says, I can't baptize you. You, Jesus, have to baptize me. And Jesus says something strange. And I don't know about you, I feel like a lot of times I'm reading through the Bible and you read something Jesus says and you're like, I don't, what does that mean? <laughs> um, but because it's Jesus, we just kind of smile and nod and <laughs> move along. But, but Jesus says this in response to John. John, I must be baptized by you. John says, you need to baptize me, I can't baptize you. Jesus says this. Let it be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? <laughs> fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying here is that the covenant must be fulfilled. The human end of this covenant between God and human beings has not been fulfilled because human beings have not taken our responsibility seriously and we have betrayed the covenant God, but the, the covenant must be fulfilled. The covenant promises of God require a human being who will keep the terms of the covenant. And so Jesus is saying here that he has come to fulfill all righteousness. And throughout his life, we see Jesus constantly doing what? Not saying, what do I most want to do in this moment? but rather trusting in the will of his Father. And so Jesus <clears throat> is fulfilling the human end of the covenant that we have failed to uphold. And then on the night that he was betrayed, having fulfilled all righteousness, Jesus gathers with his disciples and institutes the meal that we remember him by that we're going to celebrate in just a moment. But think about what he says. After they had eaten, he takes the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what he's showing us is that the curse that comes from violating the covenants, he will bear himself. The curse that comes from breaking covenant with God. When God said, in the day that you eat of that, the fruit of that tree, dying you shall die, Jesus says, I will be the one who will go to the tree and bear the curse myself. And so he goes to the cross, bearing our sin, entrusting himself to God the Father in order to faithfully uphold the promises of God for us. So what does that mean for us? I mean, one, hallelujah. That is good news. It makes all the difference in the world, but I want to say two things specifically. First, it means that you don't have to wonder if you have done enough. And, you know, we live in a world now where we say things like, the universe must be angry with me. Or, um, and what I'm getting at here is this. I think that we are prone to like flip-flopping between optimism and pessimism. Um, are things going really well, then we're optimistic, but then something bad happens and we're like, everything is awful. And we say like, 
God must be angry with me or the universe must be misaligned. And if this is true, it means that if you are in Christ, the covenant promises of God are yours and God has been faithful to you even when you are faithful to him. And so you don't have to wonder if the other shoe is about to drop or if the universe is against you because God has kept his promise to you even when it doesn't serve his interests. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he bears the curse of God so that you might receive the smile of God. That's the first thing this means. But the second thing that this means is if you grasp the covenant promising God who has upheld your end of the covenant and his own, it will fundamentally transform the way that you relate to other people. If you grasp the covenant love of God, it will make you into a committer instead of a consumer. See, we now live in a world where we view almost every relationship in terms of what we get out of it. And so if we are putting more into a relationship than we feel like we're getting out of it, what do we do? I mean, we tend to just bail on that relationship, don't we? If this friendship isn't suiting me, I'm out. And let me be clear, like I'm not a Luddite. I don't think technology is, is the worst thing in the world. But it's a lot easier to send a text and sever a relationship than it is to have that conversation in person. Or we just don't have a conversation at all. This relationship, this friendship isn't suiting me, I'm out. If I made a commitment to this person, but then I get another opportunity at the last minute, I'm going with that opportunity. I send a text, I leave the person, you know, preparing a meal at home and saying, sorry, I can't make it. But if we grasp the covenant love of God, it will transform us from consumers into committers. I mean, we even function like this in marriage. Now, if my marriage isn't fulfilling me, I need a new spouse. Over and over again, we look to other people in terms of what they've added to our lives. We're consumers. But if you grasp the reality deep down that Jesus remained committed to you when it was not doing anything for him, that he suffered so that you might receive the blessing, that he was cast out in order to bring you in, it will transform you from a consumer into a committer. This is the world as God intended it. Yahweh creates a people. He gives us a place in paradise in order to be with us, to give us his presence. And when we reject him, he remains committed to us and pursues us at infinite cost to himself. And when we grasp that, it transforms us into people who function in a fundamentally different way in our world and we begin to think about how we can enter into covenantal relationships in creation rather than consumer relationships. That's what Genesis 2 is laying out for us. But briefly, I want to show you the second thing in this passage. This is the nature of the covenant, but look at the blessings that flow from that covenant. I said uh, earlier, one of the things that we see other places in the Bible, whenever God reiterates his covenant promises, God always promises that his um, that, that choosing a people for himself will result in the blessing of the whole world. God doesn't come to Abram and say, Abram, I'm going to bless you so that your life is amazing. 
He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you a land. Why? So that all of the people on earth may be blessed through you. And we see the origins of that reality right here in Genesis 2 in the world as God intended it to be. God creates a people, presence, places us in Eden and paradise and it says this in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This is so beautiful. A river flowed out of Eden to, to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria and the fourth river is the Euphrates. A lot of commentaries that I looked at spent a lot of time trying to figure out where these rivers are. We know where two of them are. The Tigris and the Euphrates are really clear, and then some people think that Cush refers to Ethiopia, and people are looking for a place on this planet where four rivers come from the same place. There's all kinds of debate about maybe the flood changed everything, and I think, honestly, it kind of misses the whole point. Because while it's true that Genesis is is not saying that Eden was some kind of mythical fairy tale land, this was a real place. But what it's saying is this, out of the garden flows a river that divides into four rivers and those water the whole earth. And the, the beauty and the sustenance of the life that God created for human beings in the garden is meant to flow to the ends of the earth. It's Staggering. Yahweh is going to bless the whole earth, but the blessing of Yahweh to the ends of the earth is going to flow through the people who are in covenant relationship with him. Now, is that just a fanciful interpretation? Well, if this was the only place that you saw something like that, maybe. But you see this metaphor of the river that flows out of the presence of God to bless the earth Uh, Elsewhere in the Bible, in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel has a vision of a river that flows from the temple, which is the presence of God. And it says, and every time Ezekiel turns around and looks at the river, the river has gotten bigger and bigger and expanded. And it's saying the blessing of the presence of God is going to flow to the ends of the earth. And then you see in Revelation 21 and 22, when we finally get to the last chapter, metaphorically and literally, of of, of the story of the Bible, when it says the new heavens came down to earth and it describes the, the presence of God is returning to earth and God will dwell with human beings again and it describes the new Jerusalem with language that's strikingly similar. We go from a garden to a city where the work of culture making has reached at least some level of fruition but it's described with precious stones. And it says that in the New Jerusalem, in the New Jerusalem, the river of life is flowing from the throne of God, and the tree of life is on either side of the river. In other words, the river is flowing from the tree of life. And the life of the covenant-making God is flowing to all people. And so the point is this, and this is where we're going. It is God's intention to redeem all things and to restore the sort of relationship that he created us for in the beginning. 
and he's redeeming men and women and girls and boys and bringing us into covenant relationship with him now so that we now in covenant with him can begin to live the sort of life that he intended for us to live all along. This is our story. So I want to finish just by reading this quote from Sandra Richter. This is how she summarizes what's happening in Eden and Genesis 2. This was Adam and Eve's perfect world. Not just fruit and fig leaves, but an entire race of people stretching their cognitive and creative powers to the limits to build a society of balance and justice and joy. Here, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve would, would learn life at the feet of the Father. They would build their city in the shadow of the Almighty. They would create and design and expand within the protective confines of his kingdom. What is the blessing of this gift? A civilization without greed, malice, or envy. Progress without pollution, expansion without extinction. Can you imagine it? A world in which Adam and Eve's ever-expanding family would be provided the guidance they needed to explore and develop their world such that the success of the strong did not involve the deprivation of the weak. Here, government would be wise and just and kind, resources plentiful, war unnecessary, achievement unlimited, and beauty and balance everywhere. This was God's perfect plan, the people of God, in the place of God, dwelling in the presence of God. Friends, this is the world that God intended. This is the world that he is moving us towards as he is redeeming all things, and he invites us now to live in covenant with him, living as this sort of people in the midst of a broken world. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, what a beautiful picture. You're doing so much more than we could ask or imagine. So often we're, if we're honest, bored with you, with life. And yet we're trying to muster the conviction that there are principles in your word that we need to adhere to. And all of that's true, but God, you are doing so much more than that. And so we thank you for this incredible narrative that tells the story of the world that you intended for us. We pray that it would capture our hearts, that it would transform us as we see that Jesus upheld the covenant on our behalf. Would you transform us into people who are faithful to your covenants so that we might be of use, that we might be agents of hope in a world that is still awaiting its final redemption when all things will finally be made new. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.